You're welcome, Neil. This is hell. The only radio show, podcast, live stream where we give you a 100% guarantee that the guests are smarter than the host. This is hell, and today that is definitely the case. I mean, sure, I know more about Canadian football, but seriously, that's about it, and any knowledge of the CFL is a very, very low bar. Back in the 20th century, today's guest had written an article for Chicago's Lumpen Magazine, and to be honest, I can't even remember what the hell we talked about. That said, we are going to try to find that interview in our archives and share it on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash thisishell. So if you want to hear the very first interview we've ever done with today's guest, you can hear that on Patreon. Years later, he would contact us about his latest writing, but he was no longer in Chicago and living in Brazil. Our guest today is listener, favorite, and our correspondent and contributor, Brian Muir. Brian is editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. He is co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian will be on to talk with us about his new Substack, D-Linking Brazil. Support Brian's writing at bmeir.substack.com. It's a great place to find all of Brian's work because he posts it so many different places. It's a really great central location to find all of his writing. At Substack, Brian's been writing about and sharing reports on the aftermath of the election of President Lula da Silva and the fallout from January's failed coup by allies of the former President Jair Bolsonaro. Brian was most recently on the show back in January, shortly after that failed coup. Our conversation with Brian in October 2022, shortly after now President Lula's victory in the first round of voting, and how the Western media was somehow spinning Lula's victory as a win for Bolsonaro, and the Brazil Army's resumed election threats, that conversation was chosen by listeners, by you, as one of your favorite interviews to be featured on the show in 2022, and we replayed it during our Best of 2022 broadcasts over the holidays. Brian edited the Spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, which is titled The International Issue and features not only writers from around the world, but also a piece by our very own Jeff Dorchin with the headline, Schismapolitan Awakens a piece by Brian, No War But Class War, and writing from me titled, Is This Hell? How a Low-Budget Chicago Radio Show Became a Conduit of International Dissent. You can find our last eight years of interviews with Brian at thisishell.com, completely free. All you have to do is search on M-I-E-R, and it's a pretty fascinating eight years if you go through them in a chronological order to show exactly what happened with Operation Lava Jato, the railroading of President Lula da Silva, and the rise of power of Bolsonaro. Follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Find Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. 
Producing is Will Ippen. It's been nearly a month since we saw each other. I think the last time we did a show together was back on the first day of summer, June 21st. So what the hell have you been up to? Uh, I mean, there's been a, some studio time, but this is yeah, my first live show in like a month. Little, little. Uh, it's weird, right? A little rust, uh, even though it's all muscle memory now, right? It's still... Uh, it's getting there. Yeah, it's getting there. Um I didn't say how good the muscles or the memory was. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, enjoyed some uh, mountain air at a family reunion out in the Rockies, and uh, with all the all the weirdos I'm related to. And uh, so you have family out in Colorado. That's yeah, Denver. my that's actually where I was born. I was born in Denver. Uh, my currently my sister, and then uh, an aunt and uncle, and some cousins um, live out in Denver. All right, so let's get to the important part. Yeah. Uh, did you go to a dispensary? I did. And? Yeah. Uh, it's really cheap compared to here. Really? And, uh, oh, yeah. It's like uh, about half the price. Yeah, um, I've noticed that in Michigan. Ma- it's it's comparable to Michigan prices. So, so uh, <laughs> it's good that you know all. <laughs> I know my, <laughs> I know. my pot geography. <laughs> so, uh, um, but were you in a small town or are you in a big city? Because, like, if you go to a bigger city, prices are higher. If you go to a smaller town, prices are lower. Oh, I, I was uh, the first couple days I was in Denver at my sister's house, so I just went to a dispensary down the street from them. And it was still reasonable? Oh, yeah. In fact, I, I imagine it's actually more expensive up in the mountain towns where you have, like, one dispensary and, and like, a post office and a brewery. And at the- these dispensaries, do you see psilocybin? Uh, I didn't look, but it's decriminalized there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I, I'm interested. I wasn't looking to trip balls at the family, <laughs> at the family this time. reunion. No, I'm not quite that. Wow, based. everybody looks exactly like yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they all have my hands. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> So, besides for my regular daily work on the show, which can be grueling, especially when you do a show called This Is Hell, enlightening, sure, but what our show, uh, what our guests teach us at, uh, is often very, very hellish, revealing the world for what it is and not some made-up myth, a fantasy created by the wild imaginations that are embraced by those of our two major political parties. And nothing really says democracy quite like only having two political parties who share bipartisan points of view in the establishment media. If the two parties agree, then there's absolutely no debate. On the other hand, here on This Is Hell, if those same two parties do agree on anything, we get very, very suspicious. Suddenly, we don't have a choice and they have made it for us, like the way they ignored the known effects of climate change or the way they both supported a war we were being lied into, and not just one war, but several or their support for privatizing everything and the idea of putting profits before people, or that the only solution is one that is market-based and must generate profits or it will not be pursued. Yes, we actually use the N-word on our show, neoliberalism. All that said, I've been busier of late as we prepare for our annual This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, or semi-annual as it was interrupted by the early years of the still ongoing pandemic. It's happening this Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, West, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. You can find details about Carrie's by going to carrieslounge.com. That's C-A-R-Y-S, lounge.com. Earlier this week, we told you that we will have three live musical performances during the festivities. At 4 p.m., we start with Joshua Virtue, whose critically acclaimed album Jackie's House was released shortly after the pandemic made landfall here in the States. Joshua will be followed at 7 p.m. by the trio of Ishmael, 
Ali on cello, Andrew Scott Young on bass, and Tyler Damon on drums. We wrap up uh, this Saturday's music with the band Nude, whose single, Exquisite, has also received critical acclaim. Early, earlier this week, we also announced some of the many artists featured in the art opening of This Is Art, which always accompanies every party. Those artists include Andrew Larson, Sean Hopp, Margie Lawrence, Laddie Odom, Paloma Trekka, Marco Markowitz, Eric Kersammer, Meg Gutman. Meg has uh, the American Woman's Cookbook. It's from 1911, and she has turned it into a piece of art. It's just very odd because right when I moved to Chicago, that was the first thing I found in a dumpster. Not that partic- not that exact copy, but that book, and we still have it on our bookshelf in our kitchen. Uh, also in the art show are Sierra Severson, An- Andra Kasprick, Jimmy Wilnevik, Alonso Galoo, Jackie Woke, Nellie Siegel, and of course Lisa Barcy, who very kindly curates the show every year. You can see some of the artwork that we will have on display at the uh, Facebook event page for the party. Today, after our conversation with Brian on what's happening in Brazil, we'll tell you about the prizes in this year's raffle. And as a tease, there will be two main prizes. But to find out what those are and what I mean by main prizes, stay tuned in. But more important than our party this Saturday, July 22nd. No, who's kidding who? Nothing's more important than this weekend's party. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? Uh, Why don't you think about your own answer to that question? I will. All right, thank you. Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our merchandise right now by just going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. In fact... If you are the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Mel, and you can pick up your prize at the party where we will be unveiling for the very first time all new This Is Hell swag. We hope. It's supposed to be arriving in the mail today and tomorrow. Big promises. Yes, exactly. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it at our Discord. You can post it on our Patreon page. You can... Uh, Email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer before or by the end of this week's show uh, when we are announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff uh, talking about during the Moment of Truth this week? Jeff quotes Chuck quoting Jeff and expounds, of course. Coming up, Brazil, Brazil, Brazil. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from Al. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And like I said, following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from Hell. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I will be asking were written while I was really, really high. This is Hell. Even if you have been closely following what has been going on in Brazil after the election of President Lula, who has entered his second administration after being unlawfully imprisoned, which was the only way Jair Bolsonaro became president, an unlawful arrest and imprisonment engineered by Bolsonaro's supporters, even if you have heard how Bolsonaro has been found guilty on charges related to the election, even if you have been reading reports the New York Times coverage of which is full of fear about rising left-wing authoritarianism after ignoring in years and years of real authoritarianism imposed by the far right of the uh, Bolsonaro administration, I can promise you 
that what Brian is about to share with you will freaking blow your mind. Report, returning to this is how the only correspondent we ever have had on our show who is willing to admit they are a correspondent on our show. Brian Muir is a TV correspondent for Telesur English in Brazil. Brian's on today to talk about his new substack, D-Linking Brazil. Support Brian's writing at bmir, that's B-M-I-E-R, dot substack, Dot com. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Hey, Chuck. It's great to see you back on the air, hear you back on the air. I was a little bit worried about you. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, tomorrow morning, uh, my uh, health situation continues as I'm having an elbow drained. Would you like to come up to Chicago and drain my elbow for me if you're not doing anything this weekend? As long as you can comp the travel expenses. <laughs> sure. Uh, absolutely no problem. So your most recent post at your new Substack is titled Recife, Hit with Climate Change Floods. The uh, Inter-American Development Bank has just lent $260 million to the Recife city government to help reduce damage from climate change. But as ocean levels rise, it's just a drop in the bucket. In your Telesur English report, you mentioned that one effect of rising waters from climate change is that floods are more frequent and more violent. So first, are you living in Brazil or in Brazil, in Recife right now? Is that where you're living right now? Yeah, I've been up here for like a year. It used to be my favorite city in Brazil until I moved here. You know, I'm just remembering <laughs> some of the things I didn't like about it, like the fact that every rainy season, half the city's underwater the whole time. No kidding. How about, how about your place? <laughs> Uh, the front, the street in front of our house has been completely underwater four or five times since we moved here. Wow. So even with <laughs> unlimited resources, can Recife be saved from climate change? If they had billions and billions of dollars, would Recife be able to be saved from climate change? You know, part of it, uh, part <laughs> of it's basically it was, you know, the it was really, uh, there were a couple of Portuguese living there, but the, the first people who really built it into a town were the Dutch. And you know how they love the lowest lying land possible and swamps. It's like this Dutch thing, like let's build on a swamp. So like a big part of the city is just built, literally built on swamps that are like at sea level. And so these parts of the city, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, unless they, unless they could like build some kind of Zyder Z type situation where they uh, they maintain land below sea level. I think if they can't do that, I mean, if you had unlimited money, I guess you could do that. But it looks like part of the city is going to be gone. So how seriously relative to the Bolsonaro administration is the Lula administration taking the threat of climate change, especially rising water? How devastating would it be for Brazil if the rising waters came to places like even in the interior, in the Amazon? Well, uh, you know, most of Brazil lives on the coast, first of all, like 80% of the country lives on the coast. And, uh, you know, um, the difference between, for example, Bolsonaro just almost eliminated all forms of environmental protection. He gutted the environmental protection agencies and then put like military people in charge of them who were in favor of ripping down the Amazon. He took away a lot of their equipment so that they could um, investigate illegal deforestation. And um, when Lula was present before the UN ranked Brazil as the, the world leader in reducing climate, uh, um, climate, 
um, uh, greenhouse gases. I'm sorry. Um, and since he's taken office, you know, um, deforestation has dropped by 31% in the first six months. It's still a huge problem, obviously. And he's investing a lot in alternative energy sources and things like that. But, you know, uh, it's hard to say what effect that will be if everything's, you know, whatever, burning down all over the world. It's like 120 degrees in the in Chicago right now or something. I don't know what the temperature really is, but I mean, it's, I, I think it's hard to think that one uh, president could, you know, solve global climate change in his country or her country when all these other countries aren't really doing anything about it. So do you think that climate, uh, will the indigenous in the Amazon be facing uh, similar challenges when it comes to climate change? Because I would think that the way that Brazil historically has acted is, sure, let's protect the people who live on the coasts, but less interest or less support for the indigenous within the Amazon. So could uh, climate change be uh, very disruptive, if not disastrous, for the indigenous in the Amazon? Well, if the, if the Amazon rainforest reaches a tipping point and starts burning down, that would pretty much wipe out the whole area. Like, look what's happening to all of these forests outside of, um, you know, jungle, tropical rainforests, like this forest in Canada, Australia and everything. There's already forests burning down all over the place. What if the Amazon burns down? Then we're all screwed. You know, and it's, it's approaching some kind of tipping point where that could happen. You also had a post at your Substack titled Mercenary Leader Visits Bolsonaro Aid in Jail. You write on Tuesday, July 11th, Jair Bolsonaro's former personal assistant. Lieutenant Colonel Moro Cid took the stand in Brazil's ongoing mixed parliamentary investigation into the January 8th coup attempt by supporters of Bolsonaro. For those who do not know, how much was there any popular call for a coup to overthrow Lula? After all, you know, Bolsonaro did receive 58 million votes. I know that he did lose by a lot, but still he did get 58 million votes. Was there any kind of popular call for a coup to overthrow Lula? Uh, it it's come out since the investigations have started and everything that it's it was all pretty much top down i mean if you look at what happened on january 8th a large percentage of those people were homeless people who were paid you know they were given like a free trip to brasilia and paid to participate and there was a lot of big money behind that uh you, you could call it kind of a protest, but it was like a part of a, a coup attempt that wasn't limited just to these people storming government buildings, but there were power lines blown up across the country. There was, an, there was a terrorist attempt to blow up part of Brasilia airport that was thwarted a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, but, you know, uh, those people were all funded by right-wing economic interests, uh, especially connected to the Amazon, because like all of the people who've been making money off of ripping down the Amazon supported Bolsonaro, because basically he invited them to do it. And then he, as I mentioned before, gutted all the environmental agencies. So all of these millionaires from the Amazon region were funding, were funding, uh, and also truck companies, you know, and things like that, 
were funding uh, the protests. They were funding the, the, the camps in front of military bases calling for a coup. And since the courts have cut off that funding channel, uh, there's not much mobilization going on at the base level anymore in favor of Bolsonaro. For example, the day that he was barred from running for office for the next eight years, there was no protest whatsoever in solidarity with him. So it makes it look like this, this move. For also, it's come out that he spent billions of government dollars to influence winning the election. Like he artificially lowered gasoline prices. He brought um, hundreds of thousands of families onto the welfare rolls. And it's turned out that a lot of like 50,000 of those families were military officers who were making money anyway, who didn't actually qualify for welfare. So he was doing all kinds of dirty tricks to help him get elected. But his support since the election has dropped back down to where, it, where it's always been in the 20s, 20th percentile. So you shouldn't let the fact that 58 million people vote for him think that 58 million people actually support him. Uh, the actual numbers are much lower. You also mentioned how Bolsonaro's former personal assistant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sid, was questioned for over seven hours. After a brief explanation of his duties as the president's personal assistant, he exercised his right to remain silent. His justification for this, he said, was to avoid incriminating himself in the eight investigations currently underway against him for crimes ranging from operating a payroll kickback to falsifying COVID-19 vaccination data for officials traveling to the U.S. to conspiring to overthrow the democratically elected government of Brazil. So is the railroading of Lula any indication of how the courts may rule, especially in a partisan manner and in support of those like Bolsonaro, who are connected to members of the old military junta and other undemocratic forces within the country, or have the courts changed in the short time Bolsonaro has been out of office, and therefore they may not rule in a way that is uh, supportive of those who are linked to the old junta? Well, this is where Brazil gets really complicated to explain. Like uh, Tom Jobim, the, the composer of Girl from Ipanema, Bossa Nova legend, once said, Brazil's not for beginners. So I'll try, <laughs> I'll try to explain this as best I can. Okay. And I know a lot of people don't even know where Brazil is on the map in the U.S. But uh, it's on the south side. I don't side. blame them because it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, a DePaul student once asked me when I was back in Chicago. She said, "Oh, I've always wanted to go to Rio de Janeiro. You know, how far is it from Acapulco?" <laughs> so it's it's. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, five thousand miles. <laughs> uh, but it's the fault of the education system. I'm not blaming it on American people. It's like education system doesn't teach geography right. So anyway, going back to this, what happened is that yes, the court system uh, politically persecuted Lula and the Supreme Court opened an exception to the constitution to jail him. He was released 580 days later after the elections had taken place when the Supreme Court admitted that it had acted improperly by opening this exception to the Constitution, enabling him to be jailed before his appeals process played out, uh, so we know that you know they were they were involved in. Of course, they were involved. They ratified the technically illegal impeachment of Dilma Rousseff. They were involved in the whole operation. But what happened is that they now realize that they created a monster because one of the things that 
Bolsonaro started doing was motivating his supporters to physically attack members of the Supreme Court, justices of the Supreme Court, and launched all of these conspiracy theories against the Supreme Court and against the electoral system. Just last week, Supreme Court Minister Alexandre Moraes, who was appointed by the coup president, Michel Temers, an enemy of PT, um, he was attacked in the airport in an airport in Rome or something, you know, by some Bolsonaro supporters. They they punched his son in the face. They're all going on trial now in Brazil. They've all been arrested. But but the point is, it looks like the courts sort of like realized that they had created this monster, and since then, they've been working to restore the democratic rule of law. Because what happened when they made an exception? to enable Lula to be jailed is they really created a kind of state of exception in Brazil, which enabled the rise of Bolsonaro. It enabled um, all kinds of actions operating outside of the margins of the law. And they did this with the Lava Jato investigation too. A, a regional court ruled that the Lava Jato Operation Car Wash investigators could operate outside of the law. And so now for the last two or, two or three years, they've been working to restore the rule of law in Brazil. And uh, it's not so much that they're Lula supporters or anything. I mean, most of them voted to jail Lula, but they're, they're trying to reestablish democracy. They realize that um, they really screwed up, you know, and it, it's just crazy because uh, if you look at the actual government right now, it, the Congress, basically Brazil doesn't have like a really strong presidential system. It's not, Lula's not like a, whatever, like a, like someone who, who has power to do whatever he wants, really. So we, the three branches of government have equal power, Congress, um, the court system, and, the, and you know, the executive branch. And half of the allies in the governing coalition now were people who supported Lula's imprisonment. So the whole, what, what's happened is this, um, what they call the centrão, which is really the center right. It's this huge block of lawmakers, of Congress people who span um, a bunch of different political parties. There's 26 parties represented in Congress. They've all basically switched sides from Bolsonaro to Lula, as they always just stick with whoever's in power, really. So that's really weakened Bolsonaro. It just shows you that um, also what a good politician and experienced politician Lula is to pull this all off where now he's in a situation where neither Congress nor um, the courts are siding with Bolsonaro on anything, right? The only thing that's happening that, well, there's a lot of things that happening I'm worried about. One of them is that I think the courts are afraid to go too hard after the military. Like they're, okay, this guy Mauro Cid, he was a Lieutenant Colonel. He was Bolsonaro's basically personal assistant. And he had three phones that were that he used to convey messages back and forth to Bolsonaro. And so there's a they they broke the um, they opened up all of his uh, phone records and discovered that leading up to the coup, there were all these military generals and retired generals and colonels and things like that passing messages through Mauro Sid to ask Bolsonaro to declare a state of emergency so that the military could take over. And Sid was saying back, look, I'm trying, but but, you know, we don't think we have the army on board, which is true. The army, the army leadership wasn't on board, mainly because 
apparently some of them asked the US if they were, and Russia both if they would support a, this coup. And both Russia and the US said no. Uh, so the army was not on board with it. But the Air Force and the, the, the Navy were the leadership, right? And so now we're in the, the situation where um, there's all this evidence implicating all kinds of military officers, including retired generals who were big actors in the military, the actual you know, neo-fascist military dictatorship. They're all implicated, but it seems like um, the federal police and the, the court system are, being, are acting, the Supreme Court, which has the power to launch investigations are being very timid in going after the generals. And you can see why, because the, the Supreme Court justice who was in charge of deciding whether the investigation against Lula could go forward or not, died in a helicopter accident like two days before he was supposed to issue that ruling in 2015. And uh, the military does have a long history of like creating accidents like that. <laughs> so I think they're kind of like afraid people are still afraid of these some of the, especially some of these old timers who are like major actors in the farthest right wing faction of the dictatorship which supported all of the disappearances and torture and all of that like general augusto heleno who was bolsonaro's intelligence chief we'll get to him in just a moment but so in your opinion were bolsonaro and the military especially those within the air force the navy were they simply overly optimistic about this coup? Did they believe they had far more support than they actually did? And if so, what does that tell you about the people who were behind the coup? Now, I'm just speculating here, but what I think happened is that the, the army refused to get on board with it, the army leadership, and a bunch of like, okay, because historically the military leadership has been divided into a couple different factions. They're not all unified, right? And so during the dictatorship, you had the, the mainstream military, which is, you know, conservative. It's already like very conservative, but doesn't believe in breaking from the rule of law, who are basically running Brazil during the dictatorship under the promise that they were only there to restore order, to re implement the constitution to protect against this communist threat and that they were going to return the um the country to like democratic elections after the when the time was right and then you had this group called the tigrada who are just like straight up like neo-nazis basically who who supported the idea of like uh a jakarta type solution to the labor unions and the the leftists activists and um, student activists and things like that. They just wanted to like kill everybody. And so there was like a compromise made between these two factions where they ended up killing like 8,000 people or something and torturing tens of thousands of people. But it wasn't just like a straight up elimination of everyone, you know? And so, um, so what it looks like is that, and oh, and Bolsonaro comes from that faction. Bolsonaro was a military captain during the dictatorship. He was aligned with the Tigrada. Uh, General Augusto Eleno was the personal assistant to the head of the Tigrada when he was a brigadier general in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay, so, so what it looks like happened is that rogue elements associated, affiliated with the Tigrada, including original members of the Tigrada, like Augusto Eleno, 
and younger people, you know, in partnership with some sectors of the business elite, decided to go forwards even after army leadership said they weren't going to do it. And so you see a lot of people at the rank of, for example, the, the battalion commander of Brasilia uh, refused to, to clear out after the invasion of the, the different buildings in the capital uh, where they stole all of the weapons from the intelligence <laughs> headquarters and stuff. Um, entered the presidential palace and all of that crap. After, after the federal police came in and cleared everybody out, a bunch of them ran back to this camp in front of the army base in Brasilia, and the local army commander refused to let the police arrest them for like 12 hours. There was this kind of standoff. So they were on board. The plan was uh, to create enough chaos that Lula would declare a state of an emergency. If you declare a state of emergency and a state of siege, right, that turns control of the security apparatus over to the military. So that was the actual plan, but Lula didn't, uh, Lula understood that's what was going on and he refused to call a state of emergency. Um, so basically it looks like it was kind of like, uh, I, don't, I don't wanna say like rogue elements because it was a group of far right people within the military working with business leaders that decided to kind of like damn the torpedoes and go ahead with their plan, even though the military, the army leadership national leadership wasn't on board. So was this a result, you think, of overconfidence, arrogance, or was this the result of just desperation? Uh, I think it was a result of fanaticism, which generates overconfidence. You know, these um, fascists are fanatics. You know, they're just like, you look at the the people on and and they were calling also part of the plan i just want to add a parent uh, parentheses here part of the plan was to literally kidnap and assassinate supreme court justice alexandre de moraes <laughs> so but if you if you see what was going on on the at the camps of people camped out in front of the military bases around the country it was like qn and style just nonsense you know like the, a lot of people were like literally brainwashed from social media into believing kind of QAnon type conspiracy theories. They thought God was going to keep Bolsonaro in power and stuff like that. And they, they were manipulated by these um, far right wing uh, actors within the military and business elites from, you know, the Midwest and the Amazon, Amazon area. And also, as you've pointed out on the show before, uh, influenced by Steve Bannon as well. We are speaking with Brian Meir, who is a TV correspondent for Telesur English. He has a new Substack at bmeir.substack.com. That's B-M-I-E-R.substack.com called D-Linking Brazil. And if you are already somebody who reads Brian's work, this is a great place to find all of his writing in a centralized location. And this is the part that I enjoy the most with Brian because I think it bothers him the most. It's time to talk about the New York Times coverage of Brazil. (laughs) So in a post at Substack that was originally published at our very good friends at FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in in Reporting, uh, with the headline, New York Times worries Brazil goes too far to fight the far right. 
you write that a July 1st New York Times article headlined why Bolsonaro was barred in Brazil, but Trump can run in the U.S. It does a fine job of explaining the differences in the two nations' electoral systems. However, it also further develops a narrative it has been building since Brazil's 2022 election season of an authoritarian court system that engages in judicial overreach to persecute political enemies. Would that have been an accurate assessment while Lula was on trial? And if so, did the Times have that assessment back then? Is this a consistency within the Times reporting that it sees the Brazilian uh, court system as authoritarian and engaging in judicial overreach to persecute political enemies? Well, that's, a, as usual, a complicated question. Um, because I have to be careful how I answer that to not just look like I'm being like partisan in favor of one side and against the other side because of the way the New York Times sets it up to, uh, with this false equivalency, okay? Uh, just to, the, the Times wrote dozens of articles about the Lava Jato Operation Car Wash investigation in which, uh, which was you know, done in partnership with the US Department of Justice as it published in an article in 2016 and then never mentioned again. Um, they never really spoke, they never suggested any kind of judicial overreach was going on. Uh, even though the investigation judge was the person who admitted all the evidence, rejected other evidence during the investigation, and issued warrants and things like that, who in a bizarre you know, loophole in Brazilian law dating, dating back to the Portuguese Inquisition was allowed to uh, rule on the, on the investigation that he was the judge of. You know, He wiretapped a standing president, Dilma Rousseff, speaking to Lula uh, the week before her impeachment and then edited the, the conversation to make Dilma Rousseff look as bad as possible and leaked it to the largest media outlets in Brazil uh, to support the impeachment vote. Uh, that's illegal in Brazil. You can't wiretap the president and leak it to the press. Uh, New York Times never criticized that, really. You know. Uh, and then there was another episode where they wiretapped Lula's defense lawyers' law offices which had 28 lawyers working in them, in it, most of which had nothing to do with Lula's case even. They wiretapped every telephone call coming out of that office from every single lawyer, every worker, everything, for a month, Sergio Moro, the judge, and he shared it illegally with the prosecution team so they could make, so they could map out possible moves by the defense. That went public. Uh, in 2016 also, and guess what? Uh, New York Times never mentioned it, okay? When Lula was finally jailed, he was convicted of receiving a free apartment upgrade years after he left political office as a favor from a construction company. Uh, but there was no material evidence of him ever, you know, no paper trail, no evidence that he'd ever visited the apartment. Uh, there was no, and the, it was also, it wasn't a, just an upgrade, but it was also um, construction, you know, in, installation of an elevator in the apartment. Uh, 
when the when some activists broke in to film it because the the judge wouldn't let the press in they showed that uh no elevator had ever been installed right there was no material evidence the entire his entire conviction which removed him from the elections and opened the door for bolsonaro because he was leading in the polls with double the support of bolsonaro at the time he was arrested even months after he was arrested um the only evidence was one coerced plea bargain testimony from a business executive who um, received 90% sentence reduction and partial retention of illicit assets in, uh, in exchange for telling the story that they made him change three times before they released him from jail, that Lula had received this, this apartment, which he never, you know, never received. It's been subsequently proven to be completely false. That's why he was jailed, right? Uh, one, so, so Bolsonaro was just um, barred from running for office for eight years because he committed a crime on national Brazilian television. He used government funding to hold an event in his house, the presidential palace, for a hundred foreign diplomats in which he presented this slideshow about how this um, steal of the election was going to happen, how the, there was... Um, uh, how the electronic voting machine was susceptible to fraud without proving any, providing any evidence for any of his claims. That was broadcast on live TV. It was broadcast on all of his social media accounts to millions of people. So there's no need to even bring in witnesses in that case. They just looked at the television broadcast and said, okay, that's illegal. In Brazil, you can't do that, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the difference. You know, in the case of Lula, there wasn't actually any crime committed. And in the case of Bolsonaro, he did it on TV. So I mean, it, it, there's, there's really no defense to that. Back uh, so it, by the New York Times creating this false equivalency, first of all, they're pretending that they cared about Lula's conviction, that they were worried about judicial overreach, which they weren't. <laughs> and secondly, they're making false, basically they're building up false claims of judicial overreach right now that are basically what Steve Bannon is saying. You also write that Bolsonaro's close ties to Donald Trump and Steve Bannon created the first convergence of interests between the Brazilian left and the U.S. Democratic Party in decades, leading the Biden administration to quickly recognize Brazil's election results and support Lula's inauguration in January. However, a series of moves Lula has taken since then, from refusing to send ammunition to Ukraine to giving the red carpet treatment to Nicolas Maduro uh, to de-dollarization plans for trade with China, must have some people in the state department thinking about the possibilities of fostering another coup in Brazil. Lula has worked to establish some sort of negotiations to hopefully end the war in Ukraine. Lula has refused to send military aid to Ukraine, and attempts at peace talks have not gone as well as hoped, with, for instance, Ukraine President Zelensky standing up Lula at a scheduled talk in Hiroshima back in May. That led to Lula being quoted saying that his Ukrainian counterpart Zelensky was disinterested in peace talks. How have Lula's attempts of at least assisting in brokering peace gone so far? Well, uh, you know, I think the important thing is just that he's talking about peace. The U.S. isn't talking about peace. NATO's not talking about peace, really. Their only their idea of what peace should be is unconditional surrender. That's not a peace uh, by Russia. That's not a peace negotiation. 
know, and Lula, and, but it's important to remember, nobody in Latin America is supporting Ukraine. Nobody's sending weapons to Ukraine. You know, like uh, the, I mean, Brazil didn't send weapons to Iraq when the US invaded Iraq. It didn't send weapons to Libya when the US invaded Libya. It's not sending weapons to Yemen after the US you know, sponsored this bloody war in Yemen. So why would it send, <laughs> it doesn't send weapons to anyone who's been invaded. And nor does anyone else in Latin America. It's not, you know, Bra Brazil's big problem is poverty. You know, it's not what's happening on the other end of the world. But the idea of trying to broker peace is a noble idea. And it involves listening to both sides, which is something that the NATO people obviously aren't doing. Uh, they, they're their idea of peace is unconditional surrender. That's not probably not going to happen. Um, but, you know, it annoys, it annoys the U.S. more because Brazil is the biggest country in Latin America. But you don't see anyone else. You know, even even the statement they just issued at the Copal uh, conference with the EU this week, the Latin American un leaders unanimously issued a statement, you know, in favor of peace in the Ukraine without condemning Russia, which annoyed, you know, annoyed people in the EU. But whatever, it's their, it's their position. But all I'm trying to say is it's not just Lula, it's the whole continent. And it's most of the global south. I mean, if you look at the... India and you know all in all the countries in Africa and things like that. Nobody is getting on board with this this White House narrative about the war in Ukraine. That kind of ultimatum reminds me of the ultimatum that the Clinton administration gave to Milosevic at the Dayton Peace Accords, where they said the only thing that we will accept is a complete surrender, which led to years and years of a horrible civil war. You write, this is where the New York Times judicial overreach narrative can be helpful. If the U.S. does decide to move in that direction, Times readers are already being groomed for an authoritarian Latin American strongman narrative. Is the Times already preparing their readers for, and is the Times legitimizing, a coup to overthrow the democratically elected leader of Brazil? Is there any sign the Biden administration is so opposed to the left that they will, like past U.S. presidents have, eventually support Brazil's far right and however they take the presidential office. Is that, do you see that as what the Times is trying to do, legitimize an overthrow of what they call the authoritarian left? They fear, and they, they'll call the right extremist, but they'll call the left authoritarian. Is the Times trying to prepare us for yet another coup? I, I think what the Times is doing is hedging. They're leaving that option open so that if the situation does um, deteriorate to the point where the United States supports yet another illegal regime change operation like it did in 1964 and 2016, uh, the Times will be able to have this narrative that's been slipping in in a series of articles starting from the week before the elections in 2022 about an authoritarian judiciary. And you know what, the US has enough problems with its judiciary to, to, to be like criticizing other countries' judiciaries. <laughs> Give me a break. So, Look uh, at this crap going on in Florida. Exactly. So uh, back in late June, you posted another article at Substack called Guilty, Bolsonaro convicted of election fraud, Brazil's superior electoral court. 
uh, rules far-right former president ineligible for public office for eight years. And that you write that Bolsonaro made it clear at the, that event, uh, where, which was televised and shared on YouTube by TV Brazil, the public television network, that if we were to lose, if he were to lose the upcoming election, it would be a sign that the election was stolen by communists. How effective is fear of communists to this day in Brazilian politics? And is that effectiveness waning or increasing in any way? Well, the funny thing is it was almost gone (laughs) until Bolsonaro. Like he rebuilt this kind of like Cold War paranoia about communism from the dictatorship days. Uh, There's always... 15%, 20% 15%, 20% of the country that's been straight up fascist since the 1930s in Brazil, you know, I mean, but under Bolsonaro that the number of people who are like terrified of communism probably doubled. And like the people in the, in the dictatorship era, for example, um, they were so ridiculous during the dictatorship, the censors, right? But there's a famous Brazilian poet named Ferreira Goulart who, uh, who was influenced by Cubism. He was kind of like a Cubist poet. And the censors thought that Cubism had something to do with Cuba. And so they, like, they, they arrested, I mean, he had to flee the country because he was writing Cubist poems. Uh, and that, that's the level of like what you have with Bolsonaro. That's his, that's his uh, orientation comes from those days. So he called the economist communist he called the Economist magazine the e-communist and things like that. So that this kind of anti-communist hysteria was kind of blown up during the last five years and hopefully beginning to fade more now. You know, but it, it wasn't like this was a constant thing from the 60s until the current date. It was something that was like dusted off and pulled out from an ideological drawer somewhere and used as a strategy for a failed strategy at maintaining power. You say the New York Times is hedging their bets. How much does the New York Times coverage of Brazil fall in line, align with the far, uh, the Brazilian press, which is dominated by the far right, as you've explained to us in the past? Is the New York Times coverage a lot like the far right press coverage that you do see in Brazil of Bolsonaro and Lula? Well, the, the mainstream media in Brazil is not fascist. You know, it's not like some of it comes a little bit close, but it's not like openly fascist sympathies. And so they, although they supported all the conditions that put Bolsonaro in power, they turned on Bolsonaro too. They're mainly like um, neoliberal economically, which is a right-wing position economically, right? Going back to laissez-faire and, you know, Adam Smith and all that crap. Um, that, they're that way economically, but they kind of be kind. They they try to be kind of like multicultural and pro LGBT and stuff. So I think it's almost identical to the New York Times. And you also mentioned that it looks like as though the Times is using its traditional double standard of going soft on right wing extremists while portraying leftist Latin American governments as authoritarian. So how do you think readers understand the right and the left when they are seen by the New York Times? The right, at worst, they're extremists, while the left is authoritarian. How do you think that sets up their framing of, you know, what is a very limited political spectrum? Yeah, uh, I think that um, 
a lot of people who want to be progressive, who consider themselves to be progressive or even leftists or whatever in the United States are very confused about Latin America, you know, because of newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, which honestly, I don't think the average New York Times reader believes everything they read in the New York Times these days. But, um, you know, it's one of the only go-to options in terms of like major media outlets if you're, for example, a Democrat or something like that. But I think that it just spreads confusion, you know? Like people don't know, for example, in the United States that Nicaragua has the best gender equity in, in public, you know, in government sector of any country in the Americas better than the United States or that Daniel Ortega won with 70% of the vote. All you hear about him in the US is that he's, the New York Times ran an article comparing him to Hitler, you know? And it's the same thing with uh, Cuba, with the only country in the world that has sanctions against Cuba is the United States, right? Like no one else believes this narrative in the US about Cuba, but you meet, I've gotten arguments. I've had to like unfriend some people on Facebook because they were just like attacking me for saying nice things about Cuba. So I think it, gener it just generates confusion. And what this does is it weakens solidarity with other left, uh, other leftists or progressives or union people or whatever around Latin America. You know, uh, the US, like American progressives, leftists, they could be a really positive force in Latin America. But the, um, what, the, what the New York Times says is just spreads so much confusion about everything that, uh, you know, we never get that solidarity down here very much. One last question for you, Brian. We have been speaking with Brian Muir, TV correspondent for Telesur English in Brazil, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, co-host of Brazil 24-7. Brian has been on to discuss with us his newest writing at his Substack, Delinking Brazil. Please support Brian's writing at bmir.substack.com. That's b m i e r.substack.com. And I got a question from hell for you. But the reason I have a question from hell for you, the question from hell is the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, is well, you'll see. So at any moment. If history repeats itself, if what you have reported to us here on This Is Hell for a decade now, if that is to repeat itself, we should be seeing and preparing ourselves for the left in the global north claiming Lula has sold out to the right. Is Lula not as far to the left as the Times fears he is, not as left as the left in the global north necessarily wants him to be, or is this yet again proof that the left-right political spectrum is a very misleading and inaccurate way to view the world. So do you expect the left here in the United States, the left in the global north, to start complaining that Lula has not, is not left enough? Uh, that's already happening. Uh, there's this uh, chaos actor named Sabrina Fernandez who wrote a bunch of stuff in Jacobin attacking Lula for being neoliberal uh, during the Lava Jato period, attacking the workers' party. She's already attacking Lula again. So you can see... You can see that that's going to happen, but it's that's mainly just I think just Trotskyists, you know, uh, and uh, Trotskyists with mysterious funding, you know, like Trotskyist institutions with mysterious funding. Uh, so I can I can definitely see that happening again. But it's important to remember that uh, you have the Workers Party, 
which is the first political party in Latin America ever created by the working class for the working class and still dominated by members of the working class. Uh, 50, 60% of its elected officials are former union leaders, including the president. We have this party, which is farther left than any so-called northern leftist party that's ever had power in any country in Western Europe or the United States, Canada. But then you have a, the government, which is made up of the judiciary, uh, most of whom are relatively conservative, and Congress, which in its vast majority is conservative. So we have this coalition government. Uh, you can't blame the president for you know, conservative turns caused by Congress or the judiciary. And I think that any analysis of Brazil has to be based on that. You know, it, it's not like, you know, on the one hand, New York Times and other uh, Northern Democrats have this history of calling leftist leaders in Latin America authoritarian, but, but they, they refuse to recognize when uh, the president doesn't have authoritarian powers, which is the case of Lula. He's one in, you know, he's one axis, one point on an axis with three equal powers, uh, you know, managing Brazil right now. So either he's authoritarian or he isn't, you know, but in this case, it's clearly that it's clearly not the case. And, you, you know, if you, it's easy to attack him because Congress votes for some. Brian, it is always great talking to you. I'm looking forward to the next time you are here in town. Uh, great to hear your voice again. Uh, I hope that you and your family are doing well and uh, enjoy your uh, flooding city. <laughs> Thanks. Just a quick plug here. It looks like I've got a reader article coming out about my dad's role in the Harold Washington administration shortly. So keep Chicagoans keep posted for the reader. No kidding. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a lot of people have, have come up to me and said, oh, you know why I know Brian Muir is because of his dad and what he did for the Harold Washington administration. And people are always bringing that up. Your dad has a brighter light than you, my friend. You're just on his coattails. In the city of Chicago, yeah. And my mother was the founder of the Chicago Marathon. Oh, that's right. Co-founder, yeah. That's crazy. Brian, great to talk to you again. Take care, and uh, we'll speak soon. Take it easy, Chuck. Great to hear you again. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. Can you tell I'm already in a partying mood? This is hell. The only drag is I can't party during the party. That is because I MC the raffle and introduce bands. I got to stay completely sober until the final raffle drawing, which happens this Saturday, shortly before Nude takes the stage at 3 p.m. If you learned something from what you just heard from Brian Muir on Brazil, and you want to support my attempt at staying sober until the final raffle drawing, become a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener support this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far this week's question from hell is what's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at saturday's this is hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and let's check out facebook over on facebook tom g says 
All of the change collected in the Carrie's Lounge wishing well ends the nation's coin shortage. Ah, that's sweet. And all of the wishes end capitalism. That is pretty sweet. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. And it's merging two questions from hell. A callback, a callback. Thank you, Tom G. You got a half a point for a callback. Cell S says, as Nude begins their set, a vision of noodles shall appear. Lo! It is the flying spaghetti monster, and all are touched by their noodly appendages. <laughs> it's not that kind of noodly, it's yeah. N-U-D-E. <laughs> and why there's an umlaut over nude making it nude, nude. I'm not too sure. Uh, food for thought. Uh, <laughs> John T. A seagull will steal a hot dog from someone. A morning show might put it in a those damn birds segment. Oh, nice. <laughs> God, I hate Did you see shows. the one about the falcons attacking people in the loop like about a month and a half ago? No, but I would pay to do so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go on uh, <laughs> Google that from about late May or so. Awesome. Uh, Adam A. says, I might make up an appearance. No, I hope that's the case. All right. And Neil C., Says Paul Vallis wanders in, gets drunk, and recites Communist Manifesto. Oh, wow, that would be boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Any more? Uh, that's all for Facebook. Okay, we'll get back to, we'll get back to see what things are left behind. Yeah, we'll get to those in a little bit. Uh, so we're and that's we're gonna figure out who the winner is of this week's uh, question from hell. We'll announce that after Jeff Dorchin and his upcoming moment of truth. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at Patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell late last month and earlier this month while I was out with what will hopefully be the final surgery and apparently it's not going to be because I'm having my elbow fixed tomorrow in my now year and a half health care crisis that nearly killed me we had a couple of glitches that did not allow us to post a Patreon podcast so this week you're, or we're sharing a monologue I did that was supposed to air on the day after the 4th of July we are going to air this on the 5th of July trigger warning or spoiler alert or whatever the monologue we're sharing this week is not all that, let's say, patriotic. It's the kind of thing that if it was broadcast over the air on a college or community radio station in Florida, it would likely result in me being kicked off the air, if not out of the state. It would not surprise me if what I will be sharing this week on Patreon soon becomes a crime under burgeoning neo-fascism, which is being embraced by one of our two major parties. In other words, if you feel like owning the fascists who melt like snowflakes anytime their white supremacy is challenged, then this week's Patreon monologue is for you. Will is also going to be digging through the archives to see if we can find Brian Muir's very first appearance on This Is Hell, which I think was in either 1998 or 1999. What I do remember is complaining to Brian about the incredibly small font size in Lumpen Magazine, where the article we discussed was published, a font size that is not conducive to the vision of a bitter, blind, bloke, broke, gap-toothed radio show host. But the only way you can hear all that is by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the Moment of Truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell, and we will be sharing with you an incomplete list of all of the prizes that we will be giving away during the raffle 
at our This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party happening this Saturday, July 22nd at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood with the festivities beginning at 3 p.m. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Everything happens for no reason. Last week I tore a TEDx-style stoic, a new one. During that piece, I furiously rebutted the statement, everything happens for a reason, simply by spitting, are you thick? Everything happens for no reason. In the brief banter afterwards, our bitter blind broke, bowel-abridged, rupture-repaired, fearless leader repeated back to me, everything happens for no reason. I wish to further explore this simplistic negation of a dubious platitude. Why did the chicken cross the road? And why did the Stoic say everything happens for a reason? Even the Stoic understands that life, the world, and the events within them have no meaning other than that which we give them. The Stoic does not say such a thing to get across the idea that everything happens because something happened before it that led to the present occurrence. He does not say everything happens for a reason to draw our attention to the cascade of cause and effect. He did not mean something like the building burned down because the electric wiring was shoddily installed. In the context of his 10 points, he may have meant something like, the building burned down so you could learn the lesson that an electrician must be mindful while installing wiring, take their time, and use quality materials for which they may have to pay a higher price, assuming the expense will be worth it when the next building doesn't burn down. But that's not why things happen, and we all know it. We have the option of taking what happened and learning from it, That's another way of saying, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Or, for those disinclined to imbibe sugary beverages, make avga lemono soup. And again, this is not philosophy. This is not thought. This is greeting card sentimentalism. And the problem with greeting card sentiments is that they ignore and lead others to ignore systemic problems, the recognition of which might disrupt the everyday business of shoveling power to the powerful and pumping wealth to the wealthy. There is no conspiracy to ignore systemic problems of injustice or to label critiques of destructive profit systems as sour grapes, resentment typical of losers. It just happens to be easy, easier than challenging the unfair, unequal structure of power. For philosophy to claim that the path of least resistance is a terrible teacher and then take the easy path to appealing to the self-help hungry masses is hypocrisy whether intentional or accidental. But, you might say, aren't you saying that all injustices happen for a reason, the reason being that someone profits for them? Things do not happen so you can learn from them. They don't happen so you can become who you are. They don't happen so you can meet the love of your life. They don't happen so you can achieve your destiny. They just aren't those kinds of reasons for things, at least not inherent in the web of events themselves. We human beings impose meaning on a meaningless world. 
Even a pop stoic will admit that. This might seem bleak coming from someone who only recently was advocating for a view of the universe as a playful, ever-broadening expanse of creativity if we believe the universe plays with combining combinations following a general trend toward creative complexity. How is that not assigning meaning to the direction of cosmic time and the sequence of events, if not the very events themselves? To me, the difference lies in the assignment of blame for one's misfortune. If you have a local bike shop and it goes out of business and you want to see that as a golden opportunity to start over, that's a fine attitude. But if you have a local bike shop and it goes out of business and your response is to investigate whether the failure of your enterprise was facilitated by municipal policies favoring larger businesses prone to giving large sums of money to politicians, I'm not going to judge you because you focused your response outward into the world of corruption instead of inward to probe your own flaws. Misfortune itself is a loaded term, and when I say loaded term, I mean loaded in the same sense that a baby's diaper is loaded or a president's diaper. The strategy to being a curious, tolerant, kind person is to avoid allowing your prejudices to cloud your perceptions. But perceptions without the presence of any prejudice is impossible for human beings. It's true that the idea of eventual cosmic dissolution by entropy always bothered me and that it bothered me for non-rational reasons, but there's a difference between positing a cosmos wherein a creative principle plays as much a developmental role as thermodynamic dissipation and positing a world that is trying to get you to improve yourself and chastising, belittling, or punishing those who don't perceive those lessons as such, or punishing by taking away debt relief with one hand while receiving gifts worth hundreds of thousands of dollars with the other, Sam Alito. Even a world wherein the moral arc of history bends toward justice is nothing more than an article of irrational faith without much supporting evidence, more evidence to the contrary every day. Everything happens for no reason. Things don't happen in order to teach you a lesson or to help you become your most self-actualized version of you. You might want to use experiences to learn a self-improvement lesson, or you might prefer to take in that experience on various levels of your being and allow it to change you or not in whatever ways come to pass. You might not want to organize your perceptions of reality into a helpful miniature mental army, always on the lookout for the next hill to take, always planning maneuvers, always taking territory, and thence aiming to acquire more. You might be more of a spiritual and intellectual amoeba, reaching your pseudopodia toward whatever's out there without any particular method for choosing the direction of your flow. Again, the caveat. I am old and not athletic. I have no employment prospects. I have no romantic attachments nor goals to have any. Any wealth I have is transient, and any future wealth I acquire will be gotten accidentally or grudgingly. I have the privilege of a network of friends and family, some of whom have been willing to help me out of jams. Even in less urgent times, my wealth of friends and community attachments makes my life richer and anything but lonely or depressing. So don't take me as an example to follow, but also, if your inner life is that of a curious amoeba or slime mold rather than a conquering army of nanobots deploying on mission after mission, 
don't rule out that you might be able to get away with it to a large extent within your personal constraints. Everyone has personal constraints, even those with what's called F-off money. Living in the understanding that everything happens for no reason might sound like a risky proposition. The Stoic believes he's taking risks, but everyone is taking risks, even a ne'er-do-well like me. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Jeffy, I got to get to the list of raffle prizes. So another fantastic moment of truth. I enjoyed that two-parter. Really great. And uh, we'll be speaking again next week. Okay. Well, hit the... Oh, we will. Yes. Oh, we're not off next week. I got to mm-hmm. write another one. It's the first two okay. weeks of August we're off. All right. Well, get to hitting that bong. All right. Thank you, sir. We need that journalism. <laughs> Live. <clears throat> and I'm choking. All right. There's a cough button. <laughs> I know. I couldn't reach it in time. It's disgusting. All right. Talk to you later, Jeff. Ciao. Live from Landstone from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And share the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from hell is... What's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at this Saturday's This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party? And we have responses on... Oh, we have a response on Twitter. Ahmad S. uh, suggests the devil themselves show up and validates each and everyone's feeling by reassuring that this is indeed hell. Okay. And then we're on... Is he a Patreon patron, by the way? Or them? Are they a Patreon patron, the devil? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, we'll have to check. I mean, I know my... In terms of my soul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for that newfound talent, though. <laughs> uh, let's see. Over on Discord, two responses. Uh, Kim G... We learned that Mel is a real-life space cat fighting fascism. So I like that one. Uh, and then Hugh. The discovery of a long-lost secret basement will reveal a studio below the bar directly under a pool table where a radio show is hosted featuring guests who sample cheesecakes and exclaim, Mmm, this is heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and Cat uh, read all the uh, Patreon patron uh, cool. responses, unless there's anything new there. Is there anything like in the last couple of days? Nope. Newest right. one's four days old. So uh, first, Will, what's your answer? What's the most newsworthy thing that's going to be happening at the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? Well, other than blowing the roof off the place, <laughs> that'll be uh, it. I imagine me making it to the end. It looks like quite the marathon. <laughs> it is quite the <laughs> marathon. Uh, so the answer I liked the most was Neil C. saying Paul Vallis wanders in, gets drunk, and recites the Communist Manifesto. That would be absolutely fantastic. And Neil, if you are at the party this weekend, then uh, you can pick up your This Is Hell merchandise at the party or just send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise that is currently available. This is hell.com when you click on support, which one you want, and we'll get it in the mail to you post haste. Thank you, Neil, for all of your support for This Is Hell. Congratulations. Uh, So what's my answer to this week's question from Hell? Personally, I'm hoping that absolutely nothing newsworthy happens at the party. Thanks to everyone who sent in their answer to this week's question from hell. Will, who do we have confirmed to be on next week's This Is Hell? Next week, 
Starting off, uh, Jake Johnston returns to discuss his recent writing on Haiti, including his New York Times opinion piece, The U.S. Can Still Do What's Right for Haiti. Jake is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C., and the author of the forthcoming book, Aid State, Elite Panic, Disaster Capitalism, and the Battle to Control Haiti. And then after that, national security reporter uh, Ben uh, Makich will be on to talk about his investigation at The Intercept, titled... Russian militia has links to American neo-Nazi and tr- anti-trans figures. Oh man, people are going to be pissed about yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait for that question from hell. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ben's reporting has taken him to the Middle East, Pakistan, Russia, and Ukraine, uh, where he's covered the war since 2016. Yeah, that article may even piss me off. Yeah, I'm not too sure. There will be This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Bagaldi, plus Jeff Dorton in The Moment of Truth. Uh, I, Sebastian Vupper is going to be on vacation. I'm not too sure if we're going to be playing a best of uh, the past inside the present or what we'll be doing on Monday. But a huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Kat Jarvanen, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian. Thanks to everybody, Theron Humiston, Alexander Jerry, Richard Norwood, everybody who works on the show. Talk to you tomorrow, uh, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be unpatriotic and will be hopefully playing the first interview we ever did with uh, today's guest, Brian Muir. We hope because that recording is so deep down in the archives, it was recorded on a format that no longer exists. This is how office hours are happening tonight, so drop by. It's kind of a pregame to the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party happening this Saturday. Speaking of which, we hope to see all of you at the party beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So here's some of the prizes that we'll be giving away during the raffle. And if this doesn't make you want to be at the party, I don't know what will. We are going to be raffling off a card game from the Tessa Collective called Space Cats vs. Fascism, a cooperative game where you play as a band of rebel cats trying to stop fascists from taking over the gallery. Galaxy. Gallery? Galaxy. We've got another game we will be giving away, the classic 1978 Avalon Hill game, Class Struggle, which was created by a professor of political science and intentionally for a, as a vehicle for instructing students on why Marxism is superior. Thanks to listener Andrew T. for donating Class Struggle. Boise artist Hunter A. has donated a hand-blown This Is Hell shot glass. And you can uh, just keep following us on Facebook and on Twitter, and you're going to see images of all these uh, raffle prizes going up in the next few days. Longtime listener SLS sent us two absolutely stunning wooden boxes, which uh, he is, uh, they have decorated with pyrography, that is, burn marks. There's also the mur- mural poster, The True Cost of Coal, by the Beehive Collective, which comes with a learning guide to translate all the symbolism. Listener Kevin O. has donated a hand-woven Afghan rug, the subject of which is the U.S. war in Afghanistan. We have not one but two gift boxes of all sorts of CBD stuff, from tinctures to balms to CBD tea, from the wonderful people at Wild Folk Farm. There's a year-long subscription to the Portland, Oregon alternative monthly, The Ballard. We also have a year-long subscription of art from Detroit's Kennedy Prince. Over the year, you will receive 13 prints. We'll also be giving away framed prints they've sent us over the last couple of years. We'll have autographed copies of Flint Taylor's book, The Torture Machine, Racism and 
police violence in Chicago. We got a whole bunch of swag from Mars Brewing. Uh, and we're on Lumpin' Radio when they're associated with Mars Brewing, including glasses, a thermal mug, <laughs> a set of beautiful Dungeons & Dragons dice, if that's what you're into. Uh, let's see, a coffee mug. Uh, some Mars coffee, and other Mars gifts. Back in April 2020, shortly after the still-ongoing pandemic began, listener Tyler Reese, an artist in New Jersey, sent us a painting of two astronauts looking at Earth. One is saying, Is this hell? The other responds, Always has been, while pointing a 45 at the back of the inquiring astronaut's head. Thanks to Carlos, who not only donated a Stop Cop City t-shirt to the raffle, but he also gave us this beautiful metal artwork of a flaming heart with the words, This is Hell, which you will see on at our uh, page right now, our Facebook event page. That is the top picture. So what did I mean earlier by saying we have main prizes? Well, the final two of our lucky 13 drawings will be... Stuff that's been donated to us from Maine. The CBD gift packages, the True Cost of Coal poster, and Learning Guide, the subscription to the Bollard. Thanks to Chris for donating the Bollard subscription, and Sasha and Sonia for the stuff from Wild Folk Farm. And thanks to Tanuki for the True Cost of Coal poster. We'll also be giving away new This Is Hell merchandise. And of course, copies of the children's parody book, E is for Erotica. That's Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>